Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome, or Laskavo Prosimo, as we say in Ukrainian, uh, to the newly merged Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. My name is Stephen Saum, and I'm Executive Director of Strategic Communications and Content at St. Mary's College of California, and more important, your moderator for this evening. And before we get started, just a few reminders. Uh, the club would like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting tonight's Good Lit event. Tonight's program is being recorded, so we kindly ask you to silence your cell phones for the duration of the program. That includes me. That's right. Yes. I was once at a program where Jesse Jackson's phone went off during a speech. So. What was the ringtone? <laughs> also, if you have any questions for Simon Schuster, please fill them out on the cards that are on your seats, or if you're joining us online through the YouTube chat. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Simon Schuster, time reporter and author of The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Simon Schuster has reported from Russia and Ukraine for 17 years. His coverage of the war began in 2014 when he was the first foreign journalist to arrive in Crimea as Russian troops took over the peninsula. In 2019, Simon met and interviewed Volodymyr Zelensky and continued covering his administration in the years to follow. As the full-scale invasion in Ukraine began, Simon had unprecedented access to the president's team and offers a vivid portrait and perspective about President Zelensky's leadership and ongoing efforts to protect the Ukrainian people. Simon Schuster, welcome. Thank you so much. And, and let me... Uh, start off by by saying today is day 705 of the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, nearly two years, right? Um, an invasion that many thought would never happen on outside of Ukraine as well, well as inside, and including Volodymyr Zelensky, as, as you write about. Including me. Including you. I didn't believe it either. So I'm wondering if you can... Let's start by talking about those those first hours and those those first days. The the un, unbelieving that this could possibly happen, um, and especially for Zelensky, because you write about that in gripping detail in the book. Um, what it was for the full scale invasion to to come bearing down there in the for, for the president. Yeah, he he did not see it coming uh, what, whatsoever. I, I think that came through most starkly in my conversations with uh, his wife for the book, the first lady. She described that morning waking up in the middle of the night to the sound of Russian bombs. She did not have a suitcase packed. She did not have the family documents together. Uh, they had not had a conversation about, you know, needing to prepare and, and possibly get to safety. So she was completely uh, shocked by, by what happened. Um, uh, that gives you an indication of just how uh, disbelieving President Zelensky was at the time. Um, he didn't he didn't prepare his own family simply because not because he you know doesn't love them but because he didn't believe it would happen the the idea the the picture of the invasion that was at the front of his mind was was a much more limited uh attack from the east an escalation from from uh, the 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 russian the russian border there there had been uh, as as i'm sure all of you know a, a war uh raging for about 5 years um in in the eastern region known as the donbas what zelensky expected was essentially an escalation from from there that Russia would try to seize more territory from from that area, uh, but what he got was what the American intelligence agencies had been predicting persistently, showing him intelligence to demonstrate that no, 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 this is not going to be some limited escalation. This is going to be a full scale invasion whose goal will be to kill you, President Zelensky, kill your family, take over most, if not all, of your country. He didn't believe it, so uh, when the invasion started. He had to improvise. And how did he improvise? Um, because, yes. And this and that's something that's, you know, kind of a good way to unpack kind of how the, the biography that you, you tell of him and, and what, what he brought to that that experience as president. So so how did he improvise? Well, I used I used the word improvise deliberately. Uh, one of his specialties as a comedian uh, when he was starting out in comedy was improv comedy. Uh, where someone throws, you know, you're you're a chef at a French restaurant, you know, go and you and you have to sort of morph into that thing. Um, uh, that was one of his special gifts, one of his talents. 
Um, and I argue in the book that, that to a large extent, his uh, skills as an actor, the adaptability that comes with taking on new roles, both in your, your life as an actor and also his, his adaptability and being able to shift from the, the life of a comedian to the life of a politician and a president, uh, gave him, gave him that kind of flexibility to, uh, think on his feet when the invasion began. Um, I, I think he, uh, one of, one of our conversations that comes to mind, um, is the first morning of the invasion, he described how he gave himself some something of a pep talk. Um, you know, the invasion started, the bombs are blowing up around Kiev, and he told himself, uh, they're watching, meaning all of Ukraine, the whole world. You're a symbol. You have to act the way a head of state must act. So in his mind, he was picturing... What does a person do in that situation? There is no, uh, nothing really can prepare you for that. You know, right. you have to think on your feet. You have to look to historical precedents, books that you've read, films that you've seen. Indeed, one of one of Zelensky's uh, close advisors told me we'd never seen anything like this. We'd only seen this stuff in the movies. So what do you do? You look at, at what you imagine in your mind a wartime president is supposed to be, and you try to embody that role. So that that is how he improvised. Now let's. Kind of before we dive further into that, I want to talk about an, another big theme that's that's a part of this because so here we are in winter 2024, 10 years after the revolution of dignity as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Kind of another a watershed moment in in the history of, of Ukraine. Uh, and hundreds of thousands of people right took to, to Independence Square and mm -hmm. chased out Yan Yanukovych. Um, can you talk about Zelensky's relationship with the the ideas and ideals of that um, and how it began to change him, both the, the revolution and and what followed with with the Russian invasion? Yeah. One of the things that surprised me uh, in, in researching and reporting the book when I kind of went deep into his personal background was how much he tried to stay on the sidelines and not take a firm position uh, on these big questions of where will Ukraine go? Will it integrate with the West? Will it, will it remain um, in Russia's shadow? Um, watching his comedy over the years, the first, say, 10, 13 years of, of uh, the 2000s of, of this century, um, it wasn't really clear. You, you had to guess. He made fun of all the politicians and he needled them, no matter whose side they were on. But the issue was, to a large extent, he, he relied on the Russian market as an entertainer, as a movie maker, his movies were in Ru in the Russian language, and his audience was in Russia primarily. His income came uh, roughly eighty to eighty-five percent of his income from the movie business came from the Russian market. Uh, so he needed uh, to for his business to not to alienate the Russians. That changed when Crimea was annexed. That changed when Russia first sent its troops into Ukraine and began. Uh, seizing its territory, occupying its territory. Um, that hurt Zelensky deeply. Um, after the annexation of Crimea, he began to wind down his businesses in Russia, um, and he took a principled stance that, that he just couldn't imagine taking the stage in Moscow with a smile on his face after what the, the Russians had done. And he had a personal connection with, with Crimea as well. Yeah, I mean, sure. To him, Crimea was as much Ukraine as, as Kiev, the capital. I mean... He had been performing there throughout his life. His, his family had a summer home in Crimea that suddenly was under Russian occupation. They had vacationed there. So to, to him, it hurt deeply to see uh, Russia uh, steal this land. Uh, to him, it was a stab in the back. That's how I think millions of Ukrainians experienced it, as, as your supposed brethren coming and uh, stealing a piece of your land. And can can you talk about, I mean, kind of he even directed a message himself, you know, before before he was a, a politician, but directed yeah. a message to, to Putin, right? Yes, that's right. So in the middle of the, the annexation of Crimea, you know, the, the troops are preparing uh, the occupation of the peninsula and, and preparing the, the annexation. Uh, Vlad, uh, Vladimir Zelensky appeared on Ukrainian uh, television on a news show with a speech Uh and he began that speech by saying, uh, no jokes this time. Um, and he made an appeal both to the, the leaders of the revolution that had just taken power in Ukraine. Uh, he made an, uh, an appeal to the president, Yanukovych, who had just been ousted. Most dramatically, he made an appeal to Putin. 
He said, uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich, please do not put our country on its knees. Don't put our people on their knees. Uh, you know, this, this was very far from a joke. The Ukrainian people had never seen him speak like that. He was known as a satirist, a comedian, an entertainer. And suddenly he had, he had shifted into something like political activism. He was using his fame to try to shape events. And that, that, that appearance on, on that TV show, uh, I would argue, was, was a very formative moment for his, his career, his progression into politics. So I'm wondering, talking about him and his, his progression, one of the things I'm interested in because of your longtime connection with, with Ukraine, even with, with family that they, they go back, right? So generations. Mm -hmm. um, can you also talk about that moment and the years that, that followed in terms of forging a different sense of Ukrainian identity? I mean, certainly that's something that I witnessed and had people begin to tell me firsthand in 2014. And, you know, in Kherson, Russian-speaking folks, I would talk to you saying, you know, I, I don't feel like I have a lot in common with people in, in Lutsk, but I'm Ukrainian and I don't want Putin running my country. Yeah, I, I, a lot of conversations. So I, I began reporting uh, very actively in Ukraine in 2009. Uh, that was the first time I, I lived for an extended period for about six months in Kiev. I covered the, the presidential elections that elected Yanukovych in 2010. So um, at that time, my conversations with Ukrainians often uh, were, were the following. So some of the Russian speakers would often be frustrated by the fact that TV, the television channels were... Uh, in Ukrainian, uh, the 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 language of uh, the, of communication with the state, the bureaucracy, was in Ukrainian. This was frustrating to them. It was it was an annoyance. There were a number of, of conversations. You know, this is going back again, two thousand two thousand nine, two thousand ten, when people said, at just expressing such frustration and disgust with the kinds of corrupt leaders that they had in Ukraine, it was not infrequent to hear people say, "I wish we had someone like Putin." That was also pretty typical back then. After the revolution of dignity in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, that changed dramatically. So people experienced that as, as a stab in the back, as I mentioned. And then, you know, two years ago with the full-scale uh, invasion, the, the, the Russian idea in Ukraine died. It's final death, I think. You know, this, this was a gradual progression, but, but as Russia became more and more aggressive in, in its uh, tactics and trying to keep and maintain um, control over Ukraine... The, the Ukrainians began uh, rejecting everything, everything Russian about themselves in their culture, in, in their language, in, in, in the, the films they watched. And, and this is very clear as an evolution in Zelensky in the book that I describe. He described to me um, being disgusted with the Soviet comedies that he grew up watching, that I grew up watching, uh, that, you know, Back before the invasion, they would they would inspire you know feelings of nostalgia and kind of you know a warm fuzzy feeling that you 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 feel when you watch a movie from your childhood. After the invasion, he said they they evoked disgust. He couldn't look at them anymore. Those comedies. So just just one example of of that kind of evolution culturally, uh, linguistically in terms of identity. You know, we could talk about this for for hours, but that's just one one example with him. So with, with him, too, coming back to the, the, the full-scale full invasion and, and the improvisation, I mean, there's the surviving the first few days in, in, the, in the bunker, right? And the, you know, the few weeks, few weeks right? And the um, coming out and, and broadcasting the, the message out, outdoors. Um, uh, can, can you talk about, one, about that moment and then his first trip to the front, uh, which isn't so long after, afterward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on on the second day uh, of the invasion, he he felt it was necessary to show the world that he remains at his post, that he remains in the office of the president. Um, at, at the time, there was a lot of disinformation spreading on social media and, and in the media that uh, the government in Kiev had fallen. Zelensky had run away. And there were these you know persistent uh, and and purposeful you know messages of of disinformation coming from the Russians and their and their propaganda channels. So that was the main motive he had for for stepping out. Very dangerous at, at the time. You know, Russian troops were uh, approaching Kiev quite fast. Um, it was understood by the Ukrainian security services that there were a, a great many Russian saboteurs and kind of sleeper cells. You could think of them that had taken position inside Kiev before the invasion, stockpiled weapons, rented apartments, and they were, as, as Zelensky described it, kind of in position to begin the work of the occupiers. 
Um, so it was very dangerous to step outside in that moment. You know, I, I don't know how many of you have been to Kiev. You, you, you know what the, the government quarter looks like. It's, it's not like the White House where you have kind of a large lawn and you see it from a distance. No, this is in a packed neighborhood. It's very difficult to protect. But he stepped out. He shot this famous video just simply to say, yeah, we're still here. Everybody calm down. Look, this is where we are. Um, and then, uh, then he went back to the bunker. Uh, as as his security guards insisted he do but uh, and and for those first days primarily he experienced the invasion the same way all of us did through our screens yes he was getting phone updates and he was having conversations with his generals but for the most part they were they were watching it from from their screens you know the explosions the same videos that we saw the, the, that's what they were watching down there um and after about a week, he got tired of that and he said, you know I need to experience this in, invasion the way our soldiers are and he insisted against the very, very severe, um, uh, s severe words of his security detail not to not to do this. He insisted that he, they go and visit visit the front lines. So he kind of snuck out uh, with no cameras, no no one but one of his aides and, and a couple of security guards, and they drove out to the front line. And I asked him, "Why did you do that? I mean, it's 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 crazy risk." You know, he went so close to the front line that, that a Russian sniper could easily have spotted him and, and shot him. The, the goal, as everyone knew, was of Russia was to kill him. <laughs> so what, I asked him, why did you do that? And, you know, he wasn't there to lead his uh, troops into battle. This isn't Napoleon. You know, uh, he, was, he, he said, I needed to feel their emotions. I needed to experience what they were experiencing. He wanted to talk to them. So he went there and, and uh, he, they went and took a look. He, he, he recalled seeing this massive crater that a bomb had left. And he was just shocked how huge this thing was, the kind of explosive it would take to leave a, a huge uh, uh, gaping hole in the ground like that. And on their way back, they stopped at a checkpoint where um, uh, it was around lunchtime and a local, a local man had just brought a, a pot of borscht for the soldiers to eat and he was feeding them. Uh, and the president and his, his aides and a couple of his bodyguards stood there at the checkpoint and had a bowl of soup. He got their emotions. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the, the sleeper cells. I mean, one of the, mm -hmm. on, a, on a tangent, one of the things, one of the interesting pieces uh, I read was connected with Bellingcat uh, and the research that showed that maybe not as many sleeper cells or not as many um, collaborators were bought off as were supposed to have been bought off. That that was one of the, um, that the corruption within the Russian system, the money didn't go where it was supposed to go mm -hmm. to, to buy out uh, as, as, as yeah. many people as, as they wanted. Yeah, the the story of the sleeper cells is an interesting one. I, I think from from my research, I, I, I went to a, a great lengths journalistically to try to confirm some of these stories of these sleeper cells. Um, I think it, it it was there was a lot of paranoia in Kiev at the time, a lot of fear um, and uh, panic, um, and I think some of the supposed sightings of these sleeper cells turned out not to be the case. But there was one instance that that I was able to confirm on that first day of the invasion. Uh, someone climbed into a, uh, a half-built apartment tower that happened to stand very close to the Ministry of Defense. And it was a construction site. So, you know, it was going to be a, a set of cond condominium tower, but it wasn't built yet. So anybody could walk onto the construction site, walk up the stairs, and they had a clear line of sight straight to the Ministry of Defense. Somebody went up there and opened fire with a machine gun directly at the, at the Ministry of Defense I, I spoke to to uh, a few people in the Ministry of Defense who were there at the time. They described people, you know, glass shattering, people ducking for for cover behind desks and walls. Some of the Ukrainian officers, um, you know, in in their state of shock and surprise, grabbed their Kalashnikovs and began fairly blindly shooting in the direction of this apartment tower because they saw roughly where the where the fire was coming from. So this was the the kind of situation, you know, that that. Uh, that was unfolding that day, um, what the Ukrainian Minister of Defense told me is it seemed like the goal was to spread panic. You know, they weren't trying to seize the building. They were just shooting at, at the building to, to give people inside the impression that the Russians are here. The Russians are close by. They're about to seize the building, so we need to run. Uh, and the Russians didn't yet have the forces in place to do that, but they had enough forces to scare people. That was the idea, to scare Zelensky and his government into running away. It didn't work. So one of the things that you write in the book is the Battle of Kiev, which raged through the end of March 22, had a greater impact on the course of European history than any since the end of World War II. Talk about that. 
Well, imagine what the world would look like if that battle had gone differently. The, the aim of that battle was to, uh, again, kill or capture, capture Zelensky, uh, take the capital, install a puppet regime loyal to Moscow in, in Kiev, um, and take over the entire country. You'd bring uh, the border of Russia basically right up to the border of the NATO alliance, Poland and, and other countries. I mean, it, it would be a complete realignment of, of the forces uh, in, in Europe that, that have held since, since World War II. Um, so yeah, I think it was definitely the most the most consequential. If if you think about Russia's initial war aims and what they were going for, yeah, that that would have changed the world. And one of the then one of the shocking moments came when Russian forces pulled back from from Kiev, failed failed in the assault, yeah. um, and then right and and Ukrainian forces liberated Urpin and Bucha, for example. Mm -hmm. um, couple of communities where I'd observed elections in 2019. So it's all these bucolic bedroom communities. Um, Zelensky's visit to, to Bucha, um, mm -hmm. certainly, and, and then what, what happened was, was a transformative one. Can, can you talk about that? Because you, you went with them, didn't you? No, that, that was, uh, I, I went to Bucha uh, a couple of days after his. A couple of days after, okay. But yeah, I, I get that a lot. In, in the book, it's described quite vividly, yep. so people get the impression that, that I, I was there. But it's, a lot of the descriptions are, are based on my interviews with him. You know, what was it like for you? So, but no, that, that visit to Bucha, he, he did, uh, there were no journalists with him. Uh, but he invited the press to, to come and meet him in Bucha. Uh, and, and to see what the Russians had done there, to see the atrocities. He told the press, it's very important that you are here, journalists, that you can show what the Russians did to the world. But he said, yeah, he, he said later that that was uh, the worst, the most horrifying day of that horrifying year. Uh, when, he, when he came to Bucha and he, he saw, it was April 4th of 2022, he saw uh, the atrocities, hundreds of civilians massacred, people tortured, torture chambers uncovered. Um, I mean, the most horrific scenes of, of uh, atrocities you, you can imagine. So he saw that, and, and the way he described it later was um, it gave him the feeling that the, the devil is not a figment of our imaginations. He is here on this earth. And he had the sense that he had seen the work of the devil in, in Bucha. And you actually have, have family connections in, in Bucha. You write about that in your grandmother. Yeah, so my, my uh, grandmother, my, my mother's mom, my mom is here tonight, um, <laughs> Speaking of flawed, all right. In the front row, yes. <laughs> um, she, uh, yeah, she, she grew up in Kiev, and um, she they would vacation in, in Bucha uh, when she was a little girl uh, before World War II. And and in the book, I described this a little bit. I, I called her. She's she's still she's still around. She rec recalled this very very well um, and and colorfully. Uh, and Bucha was a kind of it was a a, a peaceful, beautiful, fairly affluent community. Um, that Ukrainians, uh, especially in Kiev, uh, associate with you know summertime in in, in the garden. Uh, uh, so that's the, the the ironic thing was that a lot of people in Kiev, um, who as 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 talk of the war, talk of the invasion was intensifying um, in in the winter of, of uh, 2021 to 2022, they said maybe just in case I'm going to get out of town for a while in case they do attack Kiev, and they went to Bucha. They they rented a place or they went to their summer homes in Bucha to because it felt safe. It felt safe. One one of the other things that that you write in kind of and helping folks understand Bucha and its relationship to everything else that happened. You you quote um, Reznikov, the former Minister of, of Defense, mm -hmm. as saying the crimes of the Russian orcs took place all over Ukraine, the looting, the murders, and the rapes. But the world heard the word Bucha, right? And Bucha became the black swan, and everyone saw its images of, of Bucha. Yes, and that I have to say was not by accident. Um, President Zelensky recognized that. I mean, f first of all, to to rouse the conscience of the world, it was very important for everyone to see what the Russians had done in Bucha. But he and his government began very actively trying to show the world. The day after he visited Bucha, he spoke at the UN Security Council, and they prepared a video of the atrocities that they showed on the big screen in New York. Uh, for all the members of the Security Council, so they could see. And very soon after, uh, European leaders, once once the Russians had withdrawn from, from Kiev and its suburbs, once they lost the Battle of Kiev, European leaders began visiting Zelensky in his uh, offices, in his compound, and he would always urge them to go to Bucha and see it. 
And I, I spoke to one of the uh, one of Zelensky's close friends who uh, took, he said, in the first two months uh, after Bucha was uncovered, 30 delegations from Europe. Imagine that's, that's a few a week. <laughs> he would take them and he would bring them right up, as he put it, to the edge of the pit so they could see and, excuse me, smell what the Russians had done. And he said that was extremely effective in uh, making sure that when they went back home to their capitals, they didn't go back to business as usual. They remembered. When you see it yourself, you 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 know, you feel it. And and they they uh, in, insisted with some guests that they go and see it for themselves. Now there are, there are, I don't want to belabor it too much, but but you actually use Bucha as kind of a touch point. One to talk about even its effects on the negotiations, which did not end the, the attempts mm -hmm. negotiations toward toward peace, but but how they kind of seem to catch the Russian negotiators mm. themselves even flat footed, like they they weren't quite sure what what to do with it. Can you talk? About yeah, that? briefly, briefly. Yeah, so um, you know, at, at at this time, there there were there had already been when Bucha was uh, became known to the world, what happened there. There had already been several rounds of peace negotiations where Zelensky's envoys had gone to meet with Putin's delegation from the Kremlin to try to find a, a resolution to the war. Um, and uh, Bucha shocked the conscious the, the consciences of all of the people involved in those negotiations as well. One of the negotiators who I who I talked to as this was was happening, he said, "Yeah, at, at the last round of negotiations, the Russians seemed shaken. They didn't know how to talk about." Bucha. They, it seemed like they were themselves shocked, the negotiators. But then he said, a day later, their propaganda channels kicked in and they began saying that, oh, you faked it all. Oh, those are crisis actors laying on the ground, not dead bodies. You know, these, these kinds of horrific, just insulting uh, narratives that, that the Russians began pumping out. And then the, the Russian negotiators kind of switched on, then they knew how to talk about it, right? And they began parroting the, the Kremlin propaganda. So very quickly, those negotiations broke down uh, to a large extent um, because Bucha was, you know, became known to the world and, and it sickened the negotiators and Zelensky's team so much that they said, we can't negotiate with these monsters after what they've done to us. But I, I'd, I'd say uh, just just a, a small note about the, the breakdown in negotiations. There's there's another factor that was happening at the same time that I think is is, is underappreciated and underreported around the same time. So first of all, Ukraine had just won the Battle of Kiev. That was a major victory. There were a, a number of other events, similar victories on the battlefield, on the diplomatic front, that gave Zelensky and, and many on his team the sense that, hey, maybe we can win this thing on the battlefield. Maybe we don't have to negotiate now and grant concessions. Let's see how far we can push this while we have the momentum on the battlefield and then potentially negotiate from a position of strength later on. So that was, I think, psychologically also a very important factor of why the negotiations stopped in April 2022. So one one of the other things you, you talk about um, connect, connected with with Bucha and, and all the the atrocities that have, have come through in the filtration camps, right? You you uh, you, you quote uh, Mikhailo Podolyak, right? One of Zelensky's close, closest aides, is saying the difference between um, these wounds they, they're not going to heal the way they did after World War II, right? The Russians are not ashamed of of what they what they have done, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they demand mass murder. It's a totally different level of of understanding. Yeah, yeah, that that conversation was interesting with him because it you know it showed me how the the rhetoric inside the president's office was changing. So, yep. uh, Mr. Podolyak um, took a very hard line at, at that point. This is April 2022, days after Bucha was uncovered, and he was talking as if you know the the Russians are a race of savages with whom there can never be any negotiations. He at the time was one of the lead negotiators in the peace talks. So I asked him. What about the peace talks? <laughs> you know, if, if they're a race of savages that you can't negotiate with, um, wh why are you continuing to negotiate? Uh, I mean, the answer was essentially the president, Zelensky, was pushing him to, was insisting that they continue trying, even if it looked very hopeless, to to find some negotiated solution. Uh, but also just the, the psychologically, the, the mood inside the president's office was changing dramatically at the time. And, and they were... Um, the, the hatred and the revulsion that they were feeling toward the Russians was rising. And, and that that's what I took away from that conversation in particular. Now, one of the, the journeys that you did take with Zelensky was traveling to Kherson after mm -hmm. the, the liberation of the, the city. Yeah. Um, 
Can you talk about that and, and, and your impressions? I mean, you described, you know, what, what Zelensky did and, and, and said, um, but what, what was that experience like, like for you to see the, see the city and, and to be there as part of that? I mean, it, it was a high point. You know, now looking back, um, it, it was up to this point that that was the high point of, of Ukraine's victories militarily, diplomatically, just in the mood, the morale among the Ukrainian people in the military. They had gone from winning the Battle of Kiev uh, in, say, April to, in September, uh, winning the Battle of Kharkiv, which allowed them to regain an enormous amount of territory in the northeast. And then very soon after that, winning the battle for Kherson in the south, the, Kherson was the only city that the Russians, the only regional capital, the only big city that the Russians had managed to seize, and the Ukrainians took it back. You know, as a slap in the face of the Russian supposed military juggernaut. Uh, so uh, two days after the liberation, uh, Zelensky and I um, traveled there on his on his train with with his aides. He wanted to get there as fast as possible to. Um, to plant the flag, quite literally. I mean, the main event on, on our trip was was a ceremony to raise the national flag on the central square in Kherson. Um, I mean, I took away a lot of lessons from that. You know, our conversations on the train were, were very interesting and revealing. I, I described them in detail. Um, there was also an interesting moment, uh, kind of an anecdote that I, I think about a lot, and I've, I've recalled it in, in some interviews. Um, we're standing on the square waiting for the media buses to arrive for the journalists who are going to record this flag-raising ceremony. Um, and uh, these loud explosions begin, these booms, very close. It sounded like artillery or something. Some bombs are exploding. You couldn't see any explosions, but they were so close that you could feel the, the, the sonic waves. Um, so I freaked out. Um, everybody around us, you know, soldiers, the, the advisors, the ministers, and so on, kind of froze, and we're looking around, you know, looking at the sky. And Zelensky didn't seem bothered by it. That just shocked me. Um, he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest. He wasn't wearing a helmet. What he did was he, he saw in that moment that uh, the soldiers had set up a Starlink internet terminal there on the square uh, to get internet access for, for the, the guests from Kiev. Uh, they'd plugged it into a diesel generator because the electricity was, had long been cut off in that city. So they had a diesel generator going and they had a Starlink thing. So Zelensky looks at it and he's like, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? And he starts checking his phone. I'm like, oh, my God, can we please go back to the convoy and get out of here? You know, uh, but but it just, you know, it taught me a couple of things, I think, about him or confirmed a couple of things that I, I, I um, had seen in him before. First is, 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 a, is a huge tolerance for physical danger, mm-hmm. much greater than my tolerance for risk. Um, and, and also just the importance of that phone to him in, in the war. That is his weapon. As, as, I, as I wrote in, in, in that article uh, that, that after the trip, that is the weapon he has used to wage this war, to, to, to speak to us, to all of us, to speak to Ukrainians, to record his videos, to see the feedback, right, to call Western leaders uh, on the phone, to talk to them. That, 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 is, that is his weapon in, in, in the, the greatest land war in the information age. Now, if, if I'm remembering right, on the train, there is also the, the conversation that you have about Churchill and Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which which I think is a very a very telling one. Um, yeah, so on on the way back on the train uh, from Kherson back to Kiev, um, we were you know we had we had kind of a, a, a broad conversation about how he sees his place in history, um, how he sees the significance of the war, uh, and, and so on. These kind of more I don't know philosophical or historical questions. And one thing I asked him about was was the the comparisons that people make between him and other historical figures, wartime leaders, Churchill comes up a lot, you know, um, in, in the media, certainly. And he kind of turned up his nose at that comparison. I was surprised. He had read about Churchill. Boris Johnson, the then prime minister of, of the UK, had given him a book about Churchill. And he read it. And he didn't like uh, the fact that Churchill was a supporter of the British Empire. That was an imperialist in his politics. Uh, and uh, Zelensky sees this war fundamentally as, as an anti-imperialist war, a war to break the final bonds of empire, the Soviet empire. So uh, he, he said, um, you know, yeah, people say different things about that, Churchill. Um, I, I, I prefer other figures from that era. And he, he mentioned George Orwell, one of his favorite writers. Uh, but in greater detail, he talked about Charlie Chaplin, which really surprised me. And I said, you know, what, what do you mean? Uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin made fun of Hitler during the Holocaust. 
Uh, and there, there's a quote in, in, that's in the book uh, from that conversation where Zelensky says, look, there were these artists, these people who used the power of their art, the power of communication uh, to fight against fascism. And their influence was often stronger than artillery. So that said a lot to me about the way Zelensky understands his place in in the war, in history, the kind of pantheon of leaders that he wants to join. It's it's more Chaplin than Churchill. So let's since since we, you talked about Chaplin, let's let's jump back to a little bit of bit of backstory because we kind of skipped over over this some. Yeah, wind the um, day back, <laughs> going way back. Let's go back to to Kriviri, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the city where where Zelensky grew up, I visited there in the in the nineties when he would have been a, a university student. I was teaching there with the the Peace Corps, right? So I remember this a a kind of derelict post-industrial city with the largest steel mill in the former Soviet Union and the red snow from all the iron ore. And mm-hmm. um, it was not a happy place. Yeah. Um, but, but you kind of talk about his childhood and um, how, how he, how he survived what was actually a lot rougher than what I realized was, was going on um, and, and how that shaped him. And can, can you talk about that? Because I think that identity and growing up Russian speaking actually is, has been really important um, in uh, the role he's been able to play in, in unifying the country. I think so, yeah. I mean, it was a Russian-speaking family, a Jewish family. Um, the the city itself was was pretty awful. You know, there were there was a lot of gangs and street crime. One of the most surprising things I, I found out about this while, while researching the book was just how awful the, the gang violence was in the city in the in the 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, these these gangs would would run through the streets and and you know, beat each other to a pulp with sticks and, and, you know, improvised explosives. And like, it was, it was very nasty. Um, I, I talked to the first lady, Zelensky's wife about this. And she said, yeah, it was very difficult for young men not to join these gangs because if you weren't a member of a gang, you, you were a target of the gangs. Um, the main reason that he, he didn't get pulled into that kind of life is, is his family. So his, his, uh, uh paternal grandfather, Simeon Zelensky, uh, was a senior police official who was in, involved in fighting organized crime and fighting the gangs. Um, but also his his parents were very adamant about giving him a good education, keeping him busy all the time. So maybe there's there's a lesson for parents in this book as well. <laughs> um, they signed, and he he talked about this. They, they they were constantly signing me up for stuff: ballroom dancing, Greco-Roman wrestling. You know, music lessons, you know, math lessons, just nonstop. But the thing that really grabbed his attention was was comedy. Um, uh, you know, th- this is it's a type of comedy that's a little bit hard to explain to to uh, an American or European audience because we're not talking about stand up comedy. It's much more like vaudeville acts, uh, a lot of improv, sketch comedy, slapstick, um, dancing, musical numbers, um, and and performed in a group, in a troupe of, of uh, comedians. Um, usually college students or high school students. Uh, and he became, with, with his group of friends, he had a very successful team uh, that they were, uh, and, and they were, competition. they were competitions, right? So this is another thing that, that is difficult to get across to, to American audiences. This was a, these were comedy contests. So these were groups of comedians, young comedians who would perform on a stage in front of a panel of judges. And at the end, the judges would decide who's, who's the funniest, right? So and and this was a league, right? So you you proceed if you win in your little hometown, you proceed to the regional capital, then you proceed to the national capital, then you proceed to Moscow. Moscow is the summit of this of this league of comedians. Uh, and he made it there um, very early in, in in his life in his career. I think it was about nineteen or anyway, in his still in, in his teens when he reached the summit. His team was so successful that he um, was granted access to the the premier league in Moscow. Um, and that, you know, put him on a on a track to be uh, a very successful performer and comedian, not only uh, in Krivirik, not only in Ukraine, but indeed the entire Russian-speaking world. He very very quickly um, kind of uh, leveraged his success in in this in this comedy league to create his own production company, and they started just cranking stuff out. You know, rom coms, sitcoms, reality TV shows. Um, you know, live performances. So he he was very uh, active, very talented, very driven, um, and he was always the leader of the, of the troop. Um, so that's what uh, you know helped get him out of this very rough dead end town um, and bring him into the limelight. Uh, you know, with with the the greatest entertainers in the Russian speaking world. 
And then after the revolution of dignity, along comes Sluha Narodu as well, right? The servant, servant of the people. Um, mm-hmm. And some folks may have seen the, the television show, right? Which, which you can, can get here. But talk about the, the evolution of, of that. Um, and because that obviously is a, a transformative, you know. Part. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd stop one click before that, Sluha Naroda. So, so after um, the revolution in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, um, Russia, Russia began trying to seize more territory in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and the, the Ukrainians fought back. And this began a, a very violent and, and ugly conflict in the east, in the Donbass. Um, and Zelensky, as a comedian, began going to the front line of that conflict in 2014 to entertain the, the Ukrainian soldiers who were participating in the defense of those territories. Um, and he would fill up a couple of buses with, you know, props and speakers and costumes and backup dancers, and they would roll out there and put on shows, and sometimes right near the trenches, sometimes in their military bases or air bases. And that was a very formative experience. It was very interesting to talk to some of his old friends about this because they described the soldiers coming up to him and saying, hey, Valodya, you're so good at making fun of politicians. Why don't you try being one? Why don't you run for office, you know? And this kind of it started off as a joke, but so, so sometimes people weren't joking. There was one incident when uh, one of his old friends described to me the widow of a soldier, the widow of a, of a, a paratrooper, coming up to him after one of these performances in the front and giving Zelensky the beret from her dead husband's uniform and saying, "Here, this is for good luck. Go run for office." You know that that stays with you. I mean, he describes that as as one of the most um, memorable and formative experiences of his life. Uh, and very soon after. To go back to your question, he starts writing the script for this TV show, Sluha Naroda, Servant of the People, in which he plays the president of Ukraine. <laughs> he plays a high school history teacher who kind of stumbles into the role of the president by accident, you know? And by giving a tirade against Korea. Yeah, right. He gives this, this completely profane uh, uh, speech um, that one of his students in the classroom, uh, in his, his history classroom, uh, surreptitiously records on the phone, posts it on YouTube. Uh, and then the the clip of the rant from this random history teacher goes viral, and the elections in Ukraine happen. It's a pretty far fetched plot. The elections in Ukraine happen, and and Ukrainian voters write him in as a as a as a write in candidate on their ballots. This te- you know this random teacher who went on a rant on YouTube, and he becomes president. You know by accident. You know by by no fault of his own. Um, so what what that show did is it forced Zelensky as one of the screenwriters and indeed the star of the show and his wife, who was also a writer on the show, and everyone around them to imagine him in the role of president. What do you do? You, you know, this is what you do when you write a screen a, a screenplay or a script. You you imagine this world, this imaginary world, and in this imaginary world, Zelensky plays an eminently likable, humble, successful, uncorrupted president. Uh, and I think when Ukrainians saw that, um, it, it planted the seeds in their mind as well that like, hey, you know, maybe we need a president like that guy in that TV show. So and, and Zelensky, when he when he did then transition into politics, he didn't try to disabuse them of this notion. I mean, he almost invited them to to confuse the real Zelensky with the TV Zelensky. I mean, that was a fundamental part of his um, presidential campaign. The two days or three days before the first round of voting, Zelensky and his and his, his production company released on YouTube the full final series of this TV show, which served as so people had just enough time to binge watch the thing before they headed to the polls. You know, that that has an effect on 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 voters. They're, they're sort of encouraged to say, like, this is the kind of president you're going to have, except the, the difference is that Zelensky is in control of the world inside the sitcom. He's not in control of the real world. And as in running for president, right, it, there wasn't a detailed raft of uh, policies yeah, no. uh, that he was, uh, they, they, they were trying to. No, the comedy was the campaign. And, and that was also on purpose. They, um, I, I interviewed his campaign managers and they told me very clearly that we tried to steer clear of the issues because the issues of, again, should Ukraine go westward, should Ukraine integrate with Russia, were very divisive. The, the country was still quite divided on, on these points, and they recognized that um, taking a firm position on issues like this, issues of language, culture, political affiliation, political direction, NATO membership, EU membership, they would alienate one side of the electorate or the other. So better just to not really go there. Um, they kept it vague. 
And indeed, when I first met Zelensky in the middle of the campaign, you know, I was asking him, as a journalists are prone to do, like, what, what's your, what's your policy on such and such? What will you do if you win? And he was like, "We'll figure it out." Okay. What do you mean you'll figure it out? Well, you know, we'll figure it out. If if I can't figure it out, I'll hire some professionals. It's professional, you know, I'll hire a professor and he'll come and you know tell me, explain to me what I need to do. You know, he wasn't—he was half kidding, I guess, but it, it didn't come off as a joke because that was his platform. It was very vague. And he won, right? In the, the first round was clearly dominant. Second round, seventy-three percent. Seventy-three percent. I mean, unheard of. Yeah, really. Um, landslide. And then immediately calls parliamentary elections, um, and yep. his and his political party comes to power with an absolute majority. Right for the for the first time first time ever in Ukrainian. That's right. Yeah, they they had they they were so popular that they had the the right the ability to rewrite the constitution to basically do whatever they want, um, and this scared them. One one of Zelensky's campaign advisors, who was responsible for this whole kind of blank slate strategy of not taking a firm position, he was he was spooked. He was like, "My God, that we just we just won." We just won. And he, this is quote, uh, it was a wonderful quote, really telling. He said, now our mistakes will become their mistakes, the mistakes of the voters. Uh, so it, it, it tells you in, in a way how, how unprepared a lot of them were for, for the, the, the job. Um, uh, but his program, once he did take office, he, he made a couple of core promises in his inaugural speech. Um, one, the, the first one, the main one was peace. He will end the war in the East in the Donbas, he will reach an agreement, a negotiated deal with Putin. That was promise number one. Promise number two is fighting corruption. And more generally, I'd say a renewal of power to just kick out the old elites, to drain the swamp, to, to, to remove all these clans and oligarchs who had been ruling Ukraine up to that point for, for decades, um, to bring in new young blood. You know, that, that was sort of what, what he promised the people. Um, Mixed results. And and meanwhile, there were major cogs turning on the international stage and in, in relationships with the United States, right? So you have mm. in spring of 2019, Trump. he's, you know, he's elected and the U.S. ambassador is suddenly recalled because something is going on yeah. domestically. I mean, and I got a sense being with connections with Ukraine, some government officials and, and tell me if, if you got this from others that some realize there's there's something going on domestically in the U.S. and it's a lose lose for us. We got to kind of steer clear from it. Yeah, they, they understood that eventually um, that something dangerous and weird was going on in the in the Trump administration. Um, I mean, just, just to, to remind some of you, you may not remember this is a few years ago now. You know, this is the scandal that led to Trump's first impeachment. Uh, Trump essentially tried to extort political favors from Zelensky um, by withholding military aid. He wanted Zelensky to open uh, corruption investigations against uh, Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, in, in Ukraine. Uh, old long story. Um, the American public, for the most part, learned about that scandal from the impeachment hearings and the inquiry that then played out in, in on Capitol Hill. Um from you know the witnesses, the whistleblowers who were then who were then um, you know coming forward to describe this this uh, shakedown that, that Trump had perpetrated, I was seeing it from Kiev, uh, and I was reporting on it from the way they saw it, which was a rather different picture. Um, uh, you know, so I in the book I describe it not not from the American perspective but from Zelensky's perspective. Uh, one thing that that really surprised me is that. You, you may remember there was this perfect phone call where Trump, the perfect phone call, where Trump made this famous kind of explicit uh, deal offer, do us a favor, and then you will give you the aid you need. The favor being, give us dirt on Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Uh, when the Ukrainians finished that call and hung up, uh, one of the participants described a, a mood of jubilation. They thought they had just had a great diplomatic victory. Because if you look carefully at the White House transcript of that call, at the end, Donald Trump says, uh, come on down to Washington. We'll, we'll have you over at the Oval Office and, you know, we'll, 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 have you, we'll have a visit. We'll arrange your visit. For a Ukrainian president, that's crucial because the Ukrainian president always needs to demonstrate the strength of the alliance with the United States. The United States is the most important power. 
the most important partner for Ukraine. So they were like, yes, we got the visit, you know. And they, they described they're going, going into a neighboring room and having some ice cream to celebrate. So very different experience of that, that perfect phone call, which from the American side, Trump's advisors were listening to that and they were like, oh, my God, what did he just do? You know, they kind of sensed that this was going to blow up as a major scandal. Um, but, you know, as, as the as the scandal then evolved, I, I, I met with Zelensky um, in his office and I talked to him about, you know, how he had experienced it, what lessons he had taken. Um, uh, the, the crux of it was, you know, he was very dejected. He was very disillusioned. And he said, clearly, I can't trust anyone at all. All of our alliances are flimsy. It's all about people's interests, their self-interest, their political interest, their national interest. But there are no alliances, and I can't trust anyone, not the Europeans, not the Americans, nobody. Well, and they kept trying to arrange that visit to the, the White House, and somehow it kept, like, not not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, it never worked out. They, they, they had to wait, you know— um, yeah. Uh, a, a long time. You know, now now uh, it's, it seems that uh, President Biden has Zelensky over um, at the White House pretty frequently. They had one visit in September, another one in December. Um, but you compare that to earlier in Zelensky's uh, presidency, that's a big change, right? So, I mean, it also tells you uh, one thing that Ukraine has achieved over the course of this invasion is a sense of uh, having a seat at the table of international affairs, being respected, being listened to. So I think no one would now deny that, that Zelensky is, is, is a major player in, in international affairs. People listen to him. Um, in the beginning, you know, he complained to me in, in our interview in, in late 2019 that he felt like Ukraine was just a, a pawn on the chessboard of great powers, of empires pushing us around. And that frustrated him very deeply. And he hated to be in that position. So 2019 is also when he has his first meeting as, as president with, with Putin. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, right. It's all happening at the same time. Right. So while the impeachment scandal is playing out, he's preparing for the talks with Putin. This is all simultaneous. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people may not you know, remember or if, if they talk about, as, as you've written about in the book, you know, how, how that goes. Uh, Didn't go well. Um, he prepared a lot. Um, he, he told me that, you know, um, in, in preparation for, for the talks with Putin, again, as, as I mentioned, his main promise, and the promise number one of his presidency, is he, he told his people, I will bring peace. So from the first day, he was trying to arrange this meeting with Putin one-on-one to try to talk talk about it. And this is this is a very Zelensky thing to do. He believes in his own abilities to just get through to people. His, his powers of communication, of charm, his charisma um, rarely fails him uh, in, in his life. Uh, and he believed that if he could only just sit down with Putin, you know, and look him in the eyes and be like, come on, what's what's really bothering you? Tell tell me, maybe maybe make a joke, maybe somehow get, you know, find some kind of pragmatism or or a sense of humor in Putin that he could, you know, use uh, to to change the situation. That's kind of what somewhat naive. Um, but that that's the, the frame of mind that he went into those talks with. Um, not the only thing. I mean, I, I can say for sure I, I, I saw him doing this and talked about it. He he read the minutes of the previous negotiations that had gone on before Zelensky took power. The war had been going on for five years. There had been many previous rounds of negotiations with Putin. He read through them. The impression he got was that these negotiations just go in circles. Everybody's just repeating the same things. It's like they're pretending to negotiate and they're just going through the motions. So he said, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to look him in the eyes. And he tried. Um, and and I, I, I was lucky enough to speak with, with uh, uh, multiple people who were, who were there. It was a closed-door session. It was held in Paris in, in December of 2019. Zelensky was in power just, what, like seven, eight months at that time? Very new to politics. Um, but uh, it didn't go well. He, he tried to, to make a joke. Um, uh, he, he tried to break the ice, but he, he found a man who was just made of ice and grievances and... Uh, was was not ready to hear it from anybody. So here's a here's a a, a big question, and there's some audience questions. Yeah, about this too. So how has how has the war changed Zelensky? Do we have two hours to talk about this? Uh, I mean, the, so the the book describes you know an evolution um, of of this person. If I think back to the man I met in March of 2019, he is basically unrecognizable. Uh, today, there are some characteristics and qualities that persist throughout, but the changes in him, the, the way that politics changed him when he became president, and then the way that the invasion changed him when he became a wartime president, 
he is a different person. Um, uh, so I, I could go on and on about how, I mean, in, in terms of just interpersonal things, you know, wh what he's like to be around, um, you know, the, the administration, the atmosphere around him in the early days was very casual. Uh, when he walked into a room, people would keep their seats. Many of his aides and advisors called him by his kind of schoolyard name, Valoja. Um, there was a lot of jokes. There was a lot of banter. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of random people hanging around and kind of offering their advice to, to the president or just sort of, you know, yeah, it wasn't clear what they were doing there. Um, uh, now it's a much more disciplined, uh, steely focused group of people, much smaller group of people, much tighter. Uh, there is no joking. Um, it's very all business all the time. What is the next thing we need to do? What are we doing now? What are we doing in an hour? What are we doing tomorrow to, to, to get what we need, to get the weapons we need, to, to convince this or that country that, that they're not helping Ukraine enough. Um, it's very single-minded. Um, it's, it's very driven. Uh, and it's not as fun. <laughs> but but that, it's not the time for fun. You know, the, the war has, has, has forced him to, to shift into a very different mode of, uh, of being. And actually, in, in a piece that's just out, I think it's just out today, right? Um, you talk about uh, the the former head of Ukrainian railways and the new role he's playing with the uh, mm -hmm. uh, mi military uh, we we weapons development. But how Zelensky kind of cajoles him into the role, saying, "You know, I, I wish I could take a week off too, but it's not going to happen." Like. You, you know, you can't, we can't take a vacation. Thank you for reading that. That, that story just came out a few hours ago. You're just really prepared. Um, yes, uh, that, that's right. Yeah. So this, this minister, so that, that story is fundamentally about, you know, it's looking into the future. How are the Ukrainians preparing for, honestly, Trump to possibly return? Or even if Trump doesn't return for the Republicans to continue stalling aid uh, for aid to continue declining? What do we do? What do we do in Ukraine? How do we sustain the war? How do we keep fighting? Um, if if the Americans and the Europeans continue closing the tap, the answer, the, the primary answer is is domestic weapons production. Make it ourselves. Make the missiles, make the drones, make the artillery shells, make the guns uh, as much as we can, as fast as we can. Um, so the story is about uh, the the man. It's a profile of the of the man, the minister that Zelensky has chosen to to do this, to revive the, the fairly. Um, beaten down an old uh, military industrial complex that, that Ukraine largely inherited from the Soviet Union to bring this, to turn this thing into a war machine that can sustain the war, even in the event that, that uh, Western support continues to decline. And, and that's right. The, the, the conversation that you, you mentioned there, um, Zelensky offered this guy the job and he said, I'm tired. He had just served for a year as the head of the railways um, that doesn't sound like the most exciting job, but in the context of a war where no planes are flying other than warplanes, everything is done by rail. Refugees flee by rail. President Biden and foreign leaders arrive in Kiev by rail. Weapons, tanks, all of it is coming by rail. So this guy has had a very stressful year <laughs> of moving all that stuff. So he's like, boss, give me a few months off to rest. Like, I can't give me the summer off. I want to, you know. And he's and and Zelensky, he described his conversation in Zelensky's office. Zelensky's like, I I dream about a week, a week off, to rest. I can't do it. I can't do it. We're in the war. I need somebody. I need you to lead the military industrial complex. We have to start churning out weapons. And the guy was like, Yeah, okay, fine, let's go, let's do it. What are you gonna do? You can't you can't say no. So one of the audience members here wants to know: Is there anything that surprised or shocked you uh, about Zelensky in all your interviews? Yeah, I, get, I mean, a lot. <laughs> um, that he uh, listens so much and asks so many questions. Usually our, our conversations would begin with him asking me, Simon, what do you think about what's going on? What, what do you think we should do? And and I, I always appreciated this. It's, and I, I learned over time that it's his way of uh, checking the information that he gets from his cl very close and tight circle of advisors. Whenever he goes out to the front... Uh, and when I traveled with him, he'll ask everybody, the train conductor, his personal photographer, grandmas on the street, soldiers at the front. He'll come up and be like, what do you think? What's going on? You know, what have you heard? What are you seeing? 
how's that gun working for you? Is that, how's, how's that, that, uh, you know, artillery piece, is that working for you? Is that where, is there something we need to, to fix? And he's constantly engaging and like absorbing information. And, and I, I, I believe it's one of his main tools for, uh, making sure that, that his fairly closed circle is not feeding him, uh, only good news. So here's, and, and maybe this is too, too big a question to ask. So narrow it down as, you know, as much as you want. So ask about how Zelensky has been changed or transformed. If you were to put that in context, you know, for, you know, what you're talking in terms of people or talking in terms of U Ukrainian, the, the country, I mean, are there profound or big ways that the attitude um, or the sense of identity, um, sense of hope, anything has, has changed for, for the Ukrainians that you know? Yeah, two years is a long time to be at, at, at a war, waging a war of this this intensity. Um, I, I think President Zelensky stands out in my mind and among the Ukrainians I know for his single-minded commitment and confidence in victory. Um, a, a lot of the other people I talk to, uh, including some of his close aides, to be honest, um, uh, aren't as sure and aren't as confident anymore. Um, they're tired. Like this minister I just mentioned, you know, they're humans. Zelensky's also a human, you know, he, he, and, and sometimes you see the exhaustion setting in in him. He, he doesn't give himself a break and, you know, that, that sometimes shows. So, yeah, I mean, o over time, as you would expect, yeah, there's, there's um, uh, weakening morale. Um, there's, there's exhaustion uh, at every level of society. Um, but, you know, they're, they're pushing on and, and Zelensky's always looking for new ways to inspire them to give them new reasons to, to hope and believe in, in Ukraine's victory. Often his military decisions um, tend to skew toward that, that goal of um, in, inspiring a, a belief in victory. So, so he um, tends when he makes a military decision to, he favors dramatic attacks, attacks that can, sh that can show the world that Ukraine is winning, you know, Picture a, a oil terminal that recently blew up near Saint, near Saint Petersburg. There was these massive balls of fire going into the sky. This is the kind of thing you know. Ukrainians see that and they're like, "Aha! You know, we are taking revenge against these bastards. We are winning. We have a chance here." So that that is one of the one of the ways that, that the Ukrainian military and President Zelensky have of trying to keep morale high. But uh, the, you know, the fact is that the Ukrainian armed forces have admitted that on the front line, in terms of seizing back large amounts of of occupied territory, there's been a stalemate for a long time now. So con connected with that, a couple questions, one from the audience, right? Someone wanting to, you, to talk a little bit about the, um, the, the conflict that's been, been reported on or has, has appeared between Zeluzhny and, and Zelensky, um, kind of dis disagreement, I mean, your, your, your sense of that, because you, you also, you, you interview him and, and he's, he's a part of the book as well. In, in a big way. Yeah. In, in a very big way, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, there are two relationships really at the center of the book. One is the relationship between uh, the president and the first lady. We we see a lot about him through her eyes, and we sort of follow her evolution as well um, over the years. And then the second relationship is between Zelensky and his top military commander, General Valery Zaluzhny. Um, and the way that their relationship evolves uh, from a place of, you know, in, intense trust and and admiration, uh, mutual admiration. Certainly, you know, I remember um, once I, I was uh, with the president when he took a call from from the general, and just the, the tone of his voice was so full of respect and admiration. I was really struck by that. The, the way he talked to him, the way he addressed the general. This was early early in the invasion. Over time, what you see, uh, you know, over the course of, of, of the, the story is. Uh, Zelensky develops uh, more confidence in his own abilities as a, not only a diplomat, but a military strategist. So he, he begins to have his own ideas of when it's necessary to attack, how it's necessary to attack, how to use the limited resources Ukraine has on the battlefield. And these priorities and, and goals were not always aligned with the generals. Um, and under Ukraine's constitution, Zelensky is the supreme commander-in-chief. So he has every right constitutionally speaking, to pull rank and tell the generals what to do. And at a certain point, he begins to do that. Uh, and, and they don't like it. So um, I, I think that that is the, the main, you know, if you had to summarize it, that is that is the main um, reason for the tensions. Uh, there were some others as well. But, you know, and the book goes into specific decisions where, where they clashed. And, uh, you know, Zelensky um, uh, 
urged them to take a different course or ordered them to take a different course than they were advocating. So unfortunately, we've reached the point where we have time for just, just one, one more question. So um, I, I think it's one you could probably go on for a long, long time, but I'll ask um, yeah. kind of in a, in a succinct way, right? So the national anthem of Ukraine, right? Ukraine is not dead yet. Mm-hmm. What, is that, what does that mean right now? What would you say kind of what, what is embodied in, in, in that in this moment for, for Ukraine? Well, you, it, it makes me think of the, the large arc of this war. You know, there's a tendency among journalists, among people who read the news, consumers of news, to focus on where things have been for the last day, week, month, uh, maybe a few months. And, and that tends to be, at least lately, a, a gloomy picture. Um, you know, when I when I think of, of that line from the National Anthem, I, I think of... Uh, uh, the the initial war aims of Putin and the Russians was to kill Ukraine. So to make sure that, that Ukraine is dead now, uh, that was the goal, to wipe it off the map. Um, and that failed. So, you know, to, to put things in perspective, yes, in, in recent months, things have been harder on the battlefield. Um, but if you look back to February, March 2022, uh, things were a lot worse, and the Ukrainians um, surprised all of us in, in the way that they fought back and made sure that Ukraine is not yet dead. Uh, and I think today, as we sit here, there is no imminent threat to Ukraine's existence as a nation. The threat is still real. People are dying every day. A, th- a fifth of the country is under occupation. These are very serious risks. Uh, and if Putin is not stopped in Ukraine, then he will continue on to Europe, um, uh, the European Union and NATO. Um, but, you know, the, the, the arc of this war over the last two years has shown that Ukraine is not dead yet because they, they won the Battle of Kiev and, and they, they made sure that Putin failed in his initial and main aims. All right. Well, our thanks to Simon Schuster, author of The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, we encourage you to pick up a copy of Simon Schuster's new book here or at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit the website www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Stephen Saum. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.